This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. You should know about this story if you're a regular listener to this show because uh, it goes back to a guest we had on here last week. We had her on on the 14th. You can, if you missed the interview, go to the Scott Radley Show page at 900CHML, scroll down, and you will find November 14, and then go about halfway through the show, and you will get to our interview with Lindsay Shepard. Now, if you've been following the news at all today, you've probably heard her name, because this story blew up today online, and in the papers, and on radio, and everywhere else. Lindsay Shepard is a graduate student at Wilfrid Laurier University. Ringing any bells yet? She was teaching a grammar class in university and decided to show a brief part of a debate clip from Steve Pakin's show on TV Ontario. She decided to show about a three or four minute segment of this in which Dr. Jordan Peterson from University of Toronto, a controversial man to be sure, no question about that, it was about the use of pronouns and whether people can just make up pronouns to attach to their gender identity. Dr. Jordan Peterson has been against that. He says, no, we have a language that is a language. You cannot just make up a new language. And someone on that clip also was taking issue with him. So this was not an indoctrination. It was a debate. It was a dialogue. And as I say, Steve Pakin, great Hamilton guy, would have been on the show tonight, but he had to be giving a speech this evening. I tried to get him on. She showed a bit of this in her class. Well, someone complained and she got all kinds of dumped on at Wilfrid Laurier University because she was transphobic and she was creating a toxic work environment and on and on and on. So she was told, well, we had her on last week. Again, let's go listen to that interview if you haven't heard it. But also, also go online. It's available lots of different places and she taped Thankfully, the interrogation that the three professors gave to her when they sat down and went on to her, went on about how everything she'd done wrong. They, she got called into the, into the star chamber, basically, and had to defend herself. It was absolutely Orwellian when you listen to this 45-minute interview with these three people who essentially are telling her that she is not prescribing to the appropriate group think and must change because she is not being proper for what the university stands for and expects. On and on and on. Well, when her recording of this meeting was released today, what had been a simmering story, just the pardon the pun, but the poo hit the fan. It went everywhere today and people were outraged that a university, a Canadian university, a place for higher learning would be taking that kind of position, taking a 22-year-old teaching assistant who did, best I can tell and best most people can tell, nothing really wrong, nothing wrong at all, in fact, exposed some of her university students to a different argument but that was not accepted. Well, when that transcript, when that, pardon me, when that recording came out today, oh, it got, it got ugly for the university, let me tell you. So late today, the chancellor of Wilfrid Laurier University issued an apology to Lindsay Shepard. We'll call it an apology. It does say that she is apologizing uh, she says she will convey her apology to Lindsay Shepard directly. Those are all good things. But here is where things get 
interesting. Here is where it gets interesting. Let me read you a line from the public apology that was handed out by the Wilfrid Laurier professor. And this is, we talk about this on this show because it's important. It's really important. Here's what she says. This is part of the way down after saying how apologetic she is. Let me be clear. This is her wording. Let me be clear by stating that Laurier is committed to the abiding principles of freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Giving life to these principles while respecting fundamentally important human rights and our institutional values of diversity and inclusion is not a simple simple matter. The intense media interest points to a highly polarizing and very complicated set of issues that is affecting universities across the democratic world. The polarizing nature of the current debate does not do justice to the complexity of issues, which basically says, yeah, we believe in freedom of speech, but it's complicated. See, This is where I take issue with the chancellor and I say, you still are missing the point of what's going on. This is an easy discussion to have. It's not convoluted. It's not as complex as you want to make it sound. You either believe in free speech, period, end of story, full stop, or you don't. That's as simple as it can possibly get for you. There is free speech. Or there is not free speech in the entire theory construct, whatever you want to call it, of the idea of free speech. There's not a middle ground. You either have free speech or you don't have free speech. You either say this is a place where you can explore different ideas and where sometimes what you say is going to be bothersome. It's going to upset us. It's going to make some people uncomfortable, but That's the trade-off we have for a free speech. Or you say, no, you can't have free speech. There isn't a middle ground. There is no halfway when it comes to free speech. And to say, well, we want to have free speech, but at the same time, we what she seems to be saying here is, but we also want to protect the feelings of some people. That's, that cannot be the same thing. The only exception on free speech, and this is a well established axiom is that you can't have free speech such as yelling fire in the middle of a crowded theater where people are going to die. You cannot have the kind of free speech that says, if you have a weapon, stab that person, all right, where, where it is a clear and direct threat to someone's life. That That is, but that doesn't count. That's not free speech anyway or anywhere. That's not what we're talking about. Ideas The free speech of ideas, you cannot say it's halfway. It's impossible. That just doesn't exist. There's no such thing as halfway free speech. And if you listen to the interrogation, and I urge you, when when the show is done tonight, don't go now, but when the show is done tonight, I urge you to go online, find the interrogation. It's very easy to find. It's all over the place. Go find it and listen to it. You will, your brain will hurt, your soul will hurt that this is what's going on at a Canadian university. And what is amazing to me today is how many people are online, on social media, other places saying, you know what, I vigorously, absolutely disagree with Jordan Peterson's views. I am, this is what they're saying, I am a strong leftist, I am a liberal 
to the farthest left degree. But what this has done is essentially prove that what Jordan Peterson has been saying about universities is correct. The people who are on the farthest left, who presumably would be most supporting of not having this kind of speech, you would think, because, and the reason I say that is because it, the professors are trying to protect a protected group. The people on the furthest side of the political equation that you would think might be supporting that are the ones shouting as loudly as anyone, no, 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 this is, this is not cool. This does not work. Of course, it's made worse by the fact that the clip that was shown that was so egregious and so offensive, according to this university, was shown on a public TV station, literally a public, it was a broadcast public TV station paid for by public money, and yet a public university now says, no, that's too harmful to be show, to be talked about on our campus. It was shown on the public airwaves. A four-year-old could have seen this. And was it was deemed it's not deemed too badly to show on too bad to show on public TV, and then and then here's where it goes from simply annoying if you listen to the the interrogation if it goes from annoying to completely bonkers. One of the professors who is in the interrogation starts talking about how the Nazis used free speech as a method to try and get their point across in the 1920s. So apparently free speech is a Nazi thing. If you believe in free speech, you are akin to a Nazi. This is how backwards this whole thing has gotten. And we would never have known about this had she not set that tape recorder going. Thank goodness she got that tape recorder going. But there is a professor at a Canadian university who is somehow drawing a connection between free speech and Nazism. It should be the other way around, shouldn't it? What is amazing to me by this whole thing is that somehow these professors, these people on campus actually felt comfortable enough doing this that they clearly felt they were doing the right thing. They were doing the thing somehow that was, that they were supposed to be doing, that this was a culture, this was a cultural thing. They were doing what was expected of them, that they must have thought that. And this is what we are now dealing with. This is the, this, when we've talked about this issue on this show a bunch of times, this is exactly why we've talked about this. Because across universities, many places, the ability to have a disagreement or a debate on a controversial issue is no longer allowed. You will be shut down if you don't fall into groupthink. And you can debate it and you can say, no, that's not the case. We're showing you. This is the, the, the beauty of this, and the only beauty of this, is that it is proof of what's going on. You know, here's, here's another one. There's so many things in this we could talk about. One of the professors says that this video was, should not have been shown in its context because the students, though they are 18 or older and adults, are too young and too intellectually immature to be able to unpack and figure out what they're hearing here. They are mentally weak and intellectually weak so that they can't be exposed to these kind of ideas. Now, presumably this same professor wouldn't think these students are too young or too immature to hear his points of view. Okay. His points of view. Well, no, no, of course they're just what you're expecting to hear. They're good points of view. But these other points of view, oh, these are dangerous points of view. 
you either have free speech or you don't have free speech. I'm not exactly sure why that particular professor thought that somehow he was the one who was to decide what was acceptable speech. But again, it speaks to a culture. It speaks to a university culture that a professor would believe his words, his thoughts, his philosophies are perfectly good for the 18-year-old young adults with the intellectually inferior young minds. But anyone else's point of view would be dangerous for such people whose minds had not evolved to the point that his had. Presumably, again, they're old enough to understand and appreciate his points of view. Anyway, go and listen tonight. Go and listen tonight. I urge you, go and listen. Not this minute, but after the show is done. Go and listen to the interview, the interaction, the interrogation that Lindsay Shepard had. It's, it's going to take some time. It's 45 minutes. It is a 45 minutes well worth your time. Well worth your time. And again, thank goodness she set her tape recorder going. Because this thing... There is no chance she gets an apology. There is no chance that anything changes if she doesn't have a recording of it. Nothing was changing until today when she finally released that tape recording and the world got to hear what was going on behind those closed doors. But if you want to know how sincere and how deep-hearted an apology this really is, that I can see nothing in there saying that these particular adults These instructors, these professors are going to be disciplined or fired. Nothing in there that I can see about that. And nothing in there that guarantees going forward that, you know what, free speech is going to be a accepted and agreed upon position on our campus. And we will tell our students they had better expect in future that at times over the course of their university career, they may hear things that are, they're going to be upset by that. They may be offended by that may challenge them, but that is part of the university experience. And that's part of growing up. And that's part of learning how to be an intellectual and an academic is being challenged. Nothing there that guarantees that, which tells me that Wilfrid Laurier university and its chancellor and its leadership is just waiting for this thing to blow over until the next time. And hopefully the next time the teaching assistant who gets called in and gets grilled will not be smart enough to have brought her tape recorder or we'll pat them down before they come in to make sure it's not recorded so that we're not going to get called on the carpet again. But I see nothing in here that says things are going to change. The one thing I really hope though, We talked about this last week when Lindsay was on the show. McMaster University has said that it is in the process of beginning to work on a, I can't remember the exact name they have, but an openness, a, a free discussion, a free discourse policy. Let's hope that the folks at McMaster don't seem to follow what Laurier's chancellor seems to be heading towards, which is some sort of mealy mouth sort of free speech, but only when it's appropriate kind of thing. Let's hope the folks at McMaster that I have great faith in here in our city, let's hope that they are good enough, smart enough, academically pure enough, academically disciplined enough, intellectually strong enough to say, we believe in free speech wholeheartedly, without exception, unless it is a criminal offense by calling for someone's death or something like that. But if it's simply a philosophical, religious, political viewpoint that you disagree with, we will 
live with that. We will accept that and we will honor that on our campus. And if you don't like it, too bad. Grow up, learn to live with it and deal with it because that's what university is supposed to be about. Let's hope that the people here do a much better job than the folks at Laurier are doing. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. There is a little event called the Vanier Cup. Now, the Vanier Cup, everyone knows what it is. I think it is the championship of Canadian university football. And my next guest has won it as a player. He has won it as an offensive coordinator. He has won it as a head coach. I don't know that there are any other options for him to win it as. Steph Patasic, former McMaster head coach, uh, former, well, current, former something, Hamilton Ticats. We don't know what right now. Uh, but thanks for joining me tonight. Scott, thanks for having me. Pleasure uh, to be here. What are the other options besides player, coordinator, and uh, and head coach to win it? There are none, are there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe GM? I, I, <laughs> athletic director? Athletic I, director. Okay, you maybe. can do it that way. Maybe, maybe. Uh, we have, as I say, we have the Vanier Cup in Hamilton this weekend. Now, it's a bit of a conundrum, I think, for local fans, because on one hand, you've got the Western Mustangs that McMaster players and fans don't really like because you're traditional rivals. And on the other side, you've got Laval, who I don't think any McMaster players hold, and fans hold any great love from uh, from the Vanier Cup year. So who do people cheer for if they're here? <laughs> that That is a tough one. There is a, a, a an unwritten rule in the OUA. The first team you don't like is Western. And so uh, <laughs> uh, their tradition of excellence over uh, 50 years, and, and they're actually the university that's made it to the Vanier Cup the most. I think this is their 13th appearance. Um, and, and that kind of tradition tends to create some enemies in your home conference. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's a tough sell to go cheer for uh, uh, the Purple, but uh, it's going to be a great football game, and it's a great venue, and it's supposed to be a pretty nice day. So uh, let's hope we get a big crowd. When you were either at Laurier as a player or a, uh, a coach or at Mac as a coach, was beating Western first on the agenda every year? I, I think so. I think there's little little inner rivalries for everybody, but uh, – I think every team in the OUA would say that, that there's nothing like playing Western and beating them. And, and uh, I know Waterloo has the, the crosstown rival, uh, Laurier and Waterloo. Uh, Mac, we've had some good battles with Queens, and, and uh, everybody has their, their, their little nuance, but I think everybody takes it personal when Western comes to town. Now, you are, I think, inarguably the most successful McMaster head coach uh, ever when you look at you know, three Vanier Cup appearances and one Vanier Cup championship. There's no way to not say that. But arguably number two behind you is Greg Marshall, who is, of course, became the head coach of the Ticats and now is at Western. He has had some unbelievable teams when he was at McMaster, won four straight Yates Cups, had Jesse Lumsden in the group. And then he has had some unbelievable teams at Western. How has that guy never won a Vanier Cup until at all? Maybe this year, maybe not. But how has he never won one? I just... Bad luck and bad timing. The, the the Yates Cup champions in the early 2000s at McMaster are laden with CFL guys and guys that go on to great things. Names like Jesse Lumsden, uh, O-Lineman in the CFL forever, Kyle Koch, Matt O'Meara, you name it. Uh, back then, there was no age limit. And so uh, a lot of these teams at a conference were five to ten years older than those marauders. And it was tough for any Ontario school to win anything back then. Uh, the playing field has leveled since, and, and you've seen Ontario representatives do better. Uh, Queens won one in 09, and, and we snuck one out in 2011. And uh, But it, it's tough out of conference now. That that West Conference and that Quebec Conference is tough to beat, and, and it's uh, some good parity. 
when Coach Marshall was dominating and getting out of conference each and every year, the landscape was different. So it's a little bad timing, a little bad luck, but he's put all the pieces together this year, and, and, and everybody's that's ever worked with him, I think, is hoping that this is his year, myself included. Well, I mean, certainly his team, the way they have played, they look pretty darn impressive. I mean, really, it's almost hard to imagine someone beating Western the way they're playing, and yet i got to believe that with your history, you would have a hard time betting against Laval, too. It's a, it's a real, uh, real quagmire for me. I think Laval has traditionally been some, one of the best defenses in the country year in and year out. Um, and Coach Marshall has that offense rolling like no one in the history of our, our sport. So the, the immovable object versus the unstoppable force, something's got to give, and it should be a great football game. Do you have a – you're an offensive guy, so do you tend to lean towards the offense when it comes to that kind of thing? It, it's uh, Coach Marshall, and, and this run attack is so unique and so um, – it has his stamp, and it, it's, it's such a, a Western Greg Marshall uh, – philosophical way of doing football um it's fascinating to watch and i do love watching it um it'll be very interesting because that laval front and that laval defense you just don't run the ball against them and so i like i said something's got to give one of these i probably saw somewhere in the middle where western will run a little more than than laval is used to and and laval will shut western down a little more than they're used to but there's two great quarterbacks in this game and and it's it's they're two complete football teams so it's going to come down to more than just Greg's offense and, and Glenn's defense. You had, th- when in your three Vanier Cups that you went to at McMaster, you had three terrific situations because your first year was at BC Place out in Vancouver, the year you won in 2011, and it was tied to the Grey Cup week, and there were, I think, 24,000 people there. The next year, 2012, of course, we all remember the game at Rogers Center, also tied to Grey Cup week, but just an hour down the road from your home school, 37,000 people there. And then in 2014, not tied to Grey Cup Week, but it's against Montreal in Montreal, and Molson Stadium was filled, and there were 23 or 24,000 people there. Steph, last year there were 3,000, 4,000, if you want to be really generous, 5,000 people at Tim Hortons Field. Um, this year they're expecting double or triple that, hopefully. But you look at this, you've had great experiences. What's the answer to try and turn the Vanier Cup into a sure-fire fan experience, but also player experience every year. How do you do it? I mean, you got to chip away on all fronts. I, I think uh, um, our Marauder Nation, uh, I've never seen anything in the history of the CIS or youth sport nowadays. When we went to the Rogers Center back in 2012, and, and I played for the Argos for a better part of two seasons, and I've never walked out of the locker room and had the hair on the back of my neck stand up like I did when I saw that sea of maroon. And so uh, tremendous support from our campus and from the community. And to have, I mean, there was 37,000. I bet you there were seven Rouge Or fans that made it down the highway, but the Marauder Nation was something else. And, and, and so calling out the Western uh, supporter and alumni and, and everything and, and challenging them to, to represent um, and, and be close to what McMaster was able to capture back in 212. Um, uh, we've got to put our best product on, on TV when we do. Um, and so trying to, it's a very competitive marketplace and, and show that university football is exciting. The last four or five um, years of Vanier Cups have been spectacular football. Like, I mean, last second, goofy finishes, just great, great football. So it, we got to get that out there so that the, the non-related fan gets into the 
the seats and watches the game. This is a football town, and, and uh, this is going to be two great opponents. Uh, it would be uh, pretty special if we could try to get this crowd up to 10, 15,000 fans. I, I, I watched as the diehard Ticats fans came to a, the last regular season game that meant nothing to either football team and engaged and were in the game and just loved football. But that, um, but but it's a lot easier. I mean, certainly the numbers will be up a bit because Western is within driving distance. But I'm wondering if that then becomes an essential, either that this game is tied to the Grey Cup somehow, so that you have the football fans there, or if you somehow just have to guess and hope and pray that the Vanier Cup always ends up close to one of the teams that's in it, because. It seems that in recent years, when the game is far away from the two combatants, it's just really hard to sell it. Yeah, no, there's no question. Um, we can chip away and get better. The the quicker fix and the one that ensures a, a critical mass is um, partnering up with our, our CFL uh, counterparts, U Sport and CFL working together. Um, it makes for a great weekend celebration of football in this country, and, and uh, both games are very well attended and it, it can better taste in everyone's mouth. The, the, the coordinating of that takes a lot of time and energy, and it, it requires uh, both parties to work really hard to support what we're both trying to get done between U-Sport and, and CFL. And it, it, it can be a challenge, but it definitely the end product of having those student-athletes walk out in front of 20,000 fans is, is worth that, that effort, in my opinion. Now, I have to ask you this because I was watching the games on the weekend, the semifinal games, and uh, you were doing TV, and uh, as a salesman, I don't know that there was ever been a harder job than trying to keep people watching you when the score is 81-3 to in one of the games. I, I don't think that P.T. Barnum could have kept people watching that one, quite honestly, but what has happened that 10 years ago, St. Mary's was in the Vanier Cup and the Atlantic provinces, the schools out there were competitive? Were they had some really good football teams. We know that over the years. They've had some really good teams, and yet for the past decade or so, they have just fallen off the map, and this weekend was probably the low point. Why did that happen? How has that happened? The landscape's changed a little bit. There's, there's some good football being played out east. The, Ten years ago, um, the east was one of the few conferences that had athletic awards and, and had some, some support financially to get students to come out and study and play football. Um, Ontario, the biggest conference in the country with 11 teams, had zero athletic awards. And, and when that changed 10 years ago, at that and, and we have now a, a, an age limit where you, after high school you have seven years to consume your five years of eligibility. And, and those changes on the landscapes had ripples everywhere. Um, but the East, uh, which is a little isolated and it's a un- great, unique experience for school and, and football, um, it, it's, it's it's harder now because the population is nowhere near Ontario and, and some of our bigger centers and, and Montreal and Quebec City. And, and so um, those realities and the geography um, became a little more exposed. And, I, and that's, that happened exactly a decade ago, and, and the results are, are pretty directly correlated, I think. Is it fixable? It, it is. Um, I, I think it's... For, for that national semifinal game, it's a great opportunity for the East to get to, to measure up. I, I'm not sure it's a great showcase for our youth sport product. And, mm. and uh, watching their league championship the week before, which was the overtime game against St. Mary's and, and Acadia, that's great football and would be exciting to show. What we saw in that 81-3 to game is, is maybe something that we shouldn't show. And I, I don't disagree that the East deserves 
a shot at that that game. Just it's not maybe the thing we should put on TV right now um, until how this works itself out. And if it never works itself out, there's still great football being playing out east, and, and the conferences will always have ebb and flows and, and kind of just go with it. But um, if we only get three games on TV all year, that that probably shouldn't be one of them. And not to belabor this, but one of the comments that was made by many people, and I think you may have made it as well, is that Acadia had a disadvantage that they only had three days of rest after the court hearings and everything. Everyone knows the story. But truth is, even if they had had two weeks, Western was still going to win that game handily, right? And it, there's, you've, you've hit on it on two sides. The, the wear and tear on young men. These aren't pros. These are anywhere from 18 to 22-year-old men. That, that's hard, three days rest. On the flip side, and this is one of the reasons why I think Western has a real chance, is they have rolled through the OUA so badly that I don't think they've had to play their starters in the second half of a game in almost two months. Um, they're as well-rested and as healthy as they have. you can possibly be at this time of year. You're supposed to be worn out and tired. They are rolling and in mid-season health and form on all levels. And so uh, Acadia got caught in a bit of a buzzsaw, and Laval's going to have their hands full. And I know another coach who was in that position a few years ago who didn't have to play his starters in the second half of a lot of games, and it, uh, it kind of turned out. It, it does help. It does help. It's a, it's a physical game, and, and keeping your best student-athletes healthy is, is key if you want to make a run. Will we be seeing Steph Potasic on the TV this week? Fortunately... Uh, there'll be more of us on the panel, so not as much of me, but uh, uh, rumor has it that Andy Beckler and, and a few other very talented, insightful people will be on the panel, and so I get to hang around, but uh, hopefully I get to do more listening than talking. We uh, we always love listening to you, though, Steph. It is uh, as good of you to do this, and I appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Steph Potasic, former McMaster coach, maybe future. Who knows what is down the road? And he has been with the Ticats for the last couple of years. We don't know what the future holds with that either. His contract is up December 31st. But you can see him on TV this weekend if you watch the Vanier Cup or if you go to the Vanier Cup. Tickets are on sale. There's a few left, I'm told. In, in other words, there are tickets left. You can go if you want. Here's the thing. There are a lot of people, i got to go to break here, but there's a lot of people who on, their, on the face of it go, ah, oh, Vanier Cup, I don't want to go to the Vanier Cup. I'll tell you what. Western, the way Western has played offense this year, averaging over 70 points a game in the playoffs. If you like football, this is going to be a game to tune in because it has the potential to be a lot of fun. There are other, there have been other games, other Vanier Cups, that you go, oh, this is going to be a dull one. No, this one should be pretty good. I'm expecting this one to be pretty good. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Many of you, in fact, most, I hope, I like to believe that this audience, I believe that this audience is a very bright and intelligent one and up-to-date on current events. So most of you I know have been following the news and know that something is happening in Zimbabwe because it's been all over the place. We've been hearing all kinds of stuff about what is happening in Zimbabwe. But we also recognize that Zimbabwe is a long way away from here and we don't keep up necessarily on all things Zimbabwean. And as a result, there's a lot of people who may not want to admit it publicly, but they don't really know what's happening, just that there's something happening. And it's okay. It's okay. That is why this show exists. So we can help you out. 
You don't have to admit to your learned friends that you're not really up to snuff on this one. Just stay here for the next little while and we are going to get you there so that tomorrow when you're around the water cooler or at the coffee shop or wherever else, you can bring up Zimbabwe as a point of discussion and show just how much you know. That's what we're going to do for you right now. Dr. Richard Saunders is a political science professor from York University with a specialty in African studies. He joins me now. Dr. Saunders, thanks for doing this tonight. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Now... As I say, we want to do a bit of a catch-up for people who know something is going on. They're just not exactly sure of all the details. And let's start with what happened today, because earlier today, finally, uh, the President Robert Mugabe resigned after 37 years in office as the head of Zimbabwe. Why is this a big deal? That's right. Well, he's been in office for 37 years. He's the world's longest-serving and oldest head of state, no longer. Uh, and he, in Africa, is the last of the first generation of African liberation heroes. All of the other ones are gone. He was the last man standing. So all that original wave of presidents and parties which brought their countries to independence and anti-colonial struggles, he's the last one. So he's a big figure in Africa. He's a big figure internationally. He's got an iconic status. Um, he's been stridently anti-colonial for many years. He was popular. Um, and yet the people today, and yet the people today are out celebrating in the streets. So what happened between the time that he became essentially a legend, became a very popular man and today that people would be so happy that he's gone? Well, a lot happens in 37 years. (laughs) Uh, That's true. Yep. And, uh, if you've lived in Zimbabwe, like I have, it seems a lot longer than that. Um, Robert Mugabe had a first uh, 10 years of lots of economic success and uh, led the the region in the struggle against apartheid South Africa. In the 1990s, the second decade of independence, uh, they went for market reforms and people started getting poor. In the third decade of independence, when they started losing elections, they militarized the state, and they started stealing elections. Uh, they got the army to step in, and the last five elections, actually, Robert Mugabe's party, ZANU-PF, is lost in 2008 spectacularly, but the army saved them. So it's been a long time that the people of Zimbabwe have been voting against him, they've been struggling against him. There's probably more than 2 million Zimbabweans out of a population of 14 million who had to leave the country to make a life and send money back home. It's been a long, hard struggle. And that explains why there are probably tens of thousands of people still in the streets in Harare in the middle of the night. Uh, incredible scenes. I've, I've been sent pictures of friends who, long-time civil society activists, who are posing in front of tanks. Soldiers have given them their AK-47s to pose with <laughs> and to drink wine with them. It's really extraordinary. Extraordinary. It's like the end of a war. In fact, it is the end of a kind of a civil war against the state. So this is a really big moment. While he militarized the country and clung to power militarily, was he in the same vein as some of the horrible despots that we have known as leaders around the world? Or what kind of leader was he as far as that goes? It was never one of these people who only ruled by the gun, and that that was only used occasionally in the first years of independence when he tried to wipe out the opposition, and later when he tried to steal elections. But Robert Mugabe 
it's much more sophisticated than that. He was trained by uh, uh, Maris Brother Jesuits at a Catholic mission in Zimbabwe. He was raised as a school teacher. He has a very didactic air, a very orderly air about him. He loved to dress in several rows suits. He speaks and thinks very clearly until recently. He's an old man now. So this is not somebody who was just a rabble-rouser. This was somebody who thought strategically, who had policies which were admirable for a long time. He's not. He wasn't just a thug. He's sometimes portrayed like that, but it's, that is not the case with him. Now, he, you mentioned he's an old man. He's now 93, is he? Yes, yes. Is he still, I mean, obviously he resigned today, but up until today, has he still been a vigorous uh, leader who actually does something, or has he been more of a figurehead in recent years? No, he has been very much the center of power. Three years ago, he fired another vice president, uh, who was a very popular woman, uh, the widow of a liberation war hero. He's he's uh, perpetuated various purges of the party, and he's maintained an even keel. Uh, the big mistake he made, of course, was finally getting rid of his long-standing uh, uh, defense minister and security minister, a man who's been in the party since he was 17, and he's now 75. Got rid of him uh, two weeks ago in order to make room for his wife, who's much younger, seen as very acquisitive, very rough, and was never in the liberation struggle. So this was just a step too far for the party brass. Now, The Guardian, the newspaper, had this line. I want to ask you about this because um, this obviously speaks to the later part of his leadership or the second half, I guess, of his leadership, certainly not the beginning. But here's what they wrote. He has ruled as an autocrat prepared to sacrifice the economic well-being of 16 million people in order to remain in power. Industry and farming have collapsed throughout the country while inflation has spiraled and only 10% of young Zimbabweans can find jobs at home. That is... um, you know, if there's ever, I guess, going to be a reason for people to not like their leader, seeing your entire economy, as you say, people having to leave, but seeing the entire economy collapse under you with no hope for your future would seem to do it. This is what started the problem for ZANU-PF uh, 17 years ago uh, when they lost the first round of elections to a, a new ele- uh, a new labor movement-led opposition party. It was the crisis of, of the economy, people leaving the country, deindustrialization, all those classic things that happened with market reforms. And it just got worse. In the 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s, inflation reached more than 250 million percent. At 250 million, they stopped counting. Uh, that's, st- that's staggering. I mean, that, that's, it, it's hard to fathom. I was there at the time, and it was was really incredible. In in the end, you didn't even pay uh, for things in the store with bills. You brought around stacks of money like you would stacks of chip, chips in a <laughs> casino. Uh, and, and the counting machines ran out of zeros. Uh, and then they stopped putting prices on goods because the prices changed so much during the day that the prices on goods couldn't keep up. So if you found something, you simply bought it and kept it. Those were really terrible days. And they led to a comprehensive defeat of ZANU-PF in the 2008 elections which came after the hyperinflation. And that's when the army stepped in. And that's when the donors and, and the you know, world powers stepped in and started lending Zimbabwe money again. Zimbabwe doesn't even have its own currency now. It's a multi-currency basket, but the currency that most people use is the U.S. dollar. They don't even print their own money now because of the damage that has been done to the economy. 
So if this has been going on for a while, and if there has been great dissatisfaction, and there have been elections that he has lost but has won, we know what that means with the military, what happened now that all of a sudden he was able to be ousted? What changed that he was able to be knocked out of office? Well, I mean, unusually for Robert Mugabe, who's a master at strategy, he went one step too far and tried to push his wife who has a very small, short history in the ruling party, tried to push her uh, in front of all the others who had been in the struggle and in the party for such a long time. And when he did that, it was just too far. And that's when the army stepped in. They didn't say they were striking against him. They said they were striking to stop a rot in the party and to prevent the breaking of rules. The rules is the rules are you do not jump the queue in Santa PF. And he was allowing his wife to jump the queue ahead of all the others. It was just too much. Now, and and so there's the background. But to get to today, here's the part that I think a lot of people are interested about, especially interested in about. We know that leaders of countries that are far away from us get toppled all the time, some militarily, some voted out, some assassinated, whatever it's going to be. But this one has been getting a lot of attention. Why is this particular power change so significant to the international community? Zimbabwe's always been one of these iconic African countries. It's had a good economy in the past. It's a world power when it comes. It had been uh, when it comes to tobacco. It's a gold producer. It's one of the world's major platinum producers. Five years ago, it provided twenty percent of the world's rough diamonds. So these are aspects of an economy which should make you rich, and Zimbabwe had been rich before. And uh, and there's lots of international investment, of course, there had been in Zimbabwe. When that all starts to fall apart because of mismanagement by a figure who was very well-known and is iconic, then people pay attention, and they wonder what has gone wrong with this, what used to be the breadbasket of Africa, of Southern Africa, how has it become a basket case? And so there's there's a lot of attention because of its liberation history, but particularly because of this strange turn of fate. You know, Zimbabwe seemed poised to take off and become a real substantial uh, Southern African power and, uh, you know, a political haven. And it went the wrong way and because of politics. So it sounds as though if things were done properly, that Zimbabwe could become because of the natural resources and everything else, this could be a success story and this could be a country that once again is successful financially, but will it be? Like, is there anybody lining up behind him that is obviously or clearly going to change that and bring Zimbabwe to greatness? Well, I mean, that's the $64 million question. And the the issue is, is that, you know, if you know Zimbabweans, you'll know that they're hardworking, they're well-educated, they avoid conflict. They, uh, you know, they're extremely productive compared to a lot of lesser educated uh, and uh, and poorly infrastructured countries in the region. So there's an expectation that Zimbabwe is capable of, of, you know, reviving and regaining its past, but it will require a different kind of government, not a government which is as autocratic as Robert Mugabe's was, not a government which privileges political expediency over economic development, and uh, a government which listens to its people when they want change. And 
we don't know what's going to happen. Emerson Nangagwa, the man who will be sworn in either tomorrow or the next day, is a long-standing Mugabe ally. He's been responsible for massive human rights abuses in the past. He has been a member of the cabinet since 1980, and he holds responsibility for a lot of the destruction which has happened under that ZANU-PF government. Whether or not this change opens up space for Zimbabweans to talk about what a real transition looks like, what real free and fair elections look like, and how to get there. That's the question. There are a lot of Zimbabweans, I would argue the majority of Zimbabweans, who want to have that discussion and to, do not want to have a political transition which is simply decided by dueling elites of the, this discredited ZANU-PF party. Just before I let you go, um, if it were to work, if it was to become that, we know that there are, Zimbabwe is not the only country in Africa that has dealt with leaders that have been of questionable, what do you want to say, moral fiber or have been military strongmen. Is the hope that if Zimbabwe could do it, that others around would see that it could be done and change to follow, or is that too much to hope for? That is not too much at all to hope for. You know, uh, the young generation, which is the majority of these countries from East Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, down to Angola, Mozambique, all these countries around, they watch each other. They look to see what changes take place. They took notice of the Arab Spring. They've taken notice of the changes which have happened in Kenya. And when they see Robert Mugabe brought down not only by the military, but by street demonstrations and people dancing and on the street and singing for a new kind of Zimbabwe, people sit up and they take notice. And is that really why this is so important then? Because this could, potentially, we're not saying it's going to happen, but this could change Africa as a whole? Oh, I think it's it's a, a really important moment in Southern Africa, a very important moment. This iconic figure of the old struggle has been brought down, has been humbled, and people are now calling for a rethink of what their participation in government looks like and what de- African democracy looks like. It's not being imposed from the West anywhere else. It's Africans calling for a particular open new kind of democracy and Everybody, not only in Africa, but in the world, has to be excited about that. Dr. Richard Saunders, political science professor from York University. I really, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. There is, um, there's the short-form version of it and why Zimbabwe matters. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Because again, I understand that a lot of people, it's a long way away. We don't follow a lot of news from Zimbabwe traditionally. But the issue is not that a particular guy, a particular leader is no longer in power, although that's certainly part of it. The issue is the potential for what this can do, what this could mean, what kind of impact this could have on more of Africa, potentially all of Africa, which is, we all know, a a continent that has, that does have riches, that does have lots and lots and lots and lots of potential. But so many of the countries over in Africa are governed by military strongmen or are affected by civil wars or whatever. So much of the potential of that continent is unseen, is unattained. And if this can maybe be the guy who's been there the longest, if he can be toppled, as Dr. Saunders said, maybe people in other African countries are going to look and say, well, why could we not do that here? Maybe 
we can make that change here as well. This could be a this this is the moment that could be the massive impact potentially on the entirety of Africa. And if Africa were, if many of the countries in Africa were to change and take advantage of the natural riches and everything else that they have, pretty easy to see how that could have an impact on the world, no? It's pretty easy to see. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.